I think with Judaism, you got to fight. You have to fight every day for it to mean something to you. You have to fight every day to feel it. You have to make it burn. Hi, I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. If you are listening to this and love Human and Holy, may I invite you to sponsor an episode of the podcast. Human and Holy is a nonprofit, which means your donation is tax deductible and goes directly to bringing this podcast into the world every single week, covering all of the production costs that go into bringing Human and Holy from concept to reality. If you have a birthday, a yard site, a wedding anniversary, and you want to sponsor an episode of the podcast in honor of a special day, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor or email us at info at humanandholy.com. To become a monthly supporter of the podcast, visit patreon.com slash humanandholy, where you can give as little as $1 a month to bring Chassidus into the world in a human and holy way. All the links for that are in the show notes. Today's episode is none other than a live podcast recording with the iconic Joyce Osria. Taped at the National Jewish Retreat this past summer when I had the honor of interviewing Joyce live for Human and Holy. If you aren't familiar with Joyce, let me tell you a bit about her. Joyce is an entrepreneur in the fashion industry, daughter of BCBG Max Azria's group CEO, the late Max Azria. Joyce served as the former creative director of the BCBG generation and founder of multiple clothing brands. She was born in Paris, raised in LA, and found her way to Orthodox Judaism on her own. She is the founder of the Healers Collection, which is a fashion wellness brand. She lives in Florida now with her husband and seven children. And you'll hear her today as a passionate, powerful, unapologetic Jewish woman. Hello, everybody. My name is Joyce Azria Trojanowski. I was born in Paris, France, and raised in California, in Los Angeles. Very, very lucky. At a very young age, my father would drill into me how blessed we were to live in the United States. I think by nature, my father was an entrepreneur, and he could see that our time in France was a very short window because for his level of optimism and energy, there needed to be a bigger vessel, a vessel that was more open. And as soon as he lost his father, he took my brother, my sister, myself, and my mother to the United States. I feel so blessed every day to wake up here. And it comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility to be the child of a huge entrepreneur. And with that responsibility that I take very, very seriously, I know that my gift to the world is doing the same that he does, which is spreading his light. I was blessed to be across the hall. Label Wolf gave a beautiful meditation right now. And the meditation was to close our eyes and spread our energy through our bodies, 
through the room and around the globe. Today, we have a very plagued society, which feels that their approach to the world is Instagram. And the way they spread their message is very publicly and very loud and very open. And I'm so transparent. You can see anything I ate for lunch. And being the daughter of a big entrepreneur, I remember I would go to very, very big events as a young girl or be in Saint-Tropez on a yacht. And my dad would say, everybody is looking at you. And he didn't mean it like your accomplishments in our business are important and people are looking at you or you're beautiful, people are looking at you. But he meant that people are observing the nuances, the way you're treating people, the way you're speaking to your brothers and sisters, the way you're interacting with the world, the way you stop and look at somebody in the eyes. And I realize today as I grow as an entrepreneur and as I experience the world and meet people, that very, very private moments And very, very quiet moments are sometimes the most powerful. And so to go through my entire journey, I am the daughter of a conservative Jew who is Sephardi. And I grew up in a home that hosted 120 people for Shabbos, 150 people for Shabbos. And Shabbos was always very important to me, but I didn't have a lot of knowledge. At 29 years old, When I was already 10 years married in my first marriage with one child, I had the blessing that Hashem chose me, actually in a very depressing manner, but I was in a yacht in Saint-Tropez, which I was every summer, and feeling very terrible with myself. I was running an enormous business, a half a billion dollar business at a very young age, and I never felt more disconnected in my entire life. And I jumped off the side of the boat not looking for a swim. And what found me was an experience with Hashem that changed my life and that resurfaced me, a sort of mikvah, (laughs) that resurfaced me as a really different and much more powerful person. And there I started to look and I started to value time with rabbis and I started to value time alone and I started to value meaningful relationships that I can build on. And From there, I became religious, observant, and observant in every aspect of my existence. No equation was devoid of Hashem, and everything had meaning. And in that, I found a lot of happiness. And I rebuilt, and I divorced and got remarried, and I took it from one child to seven. Yeah, six children in seven and a half years. I grew that business and many, many more businesses. And I realized on the days where the board would say, you know, she really doesn't fit the aesthetic of the brand. But then we would sit in a month-end meeting and my comps were always double-digit positive that there was really no way for them to throw me off because like my dad would say, ah, money talks. (laughs) And money did talk and bracha talks. And Hashem knows that in this partnership, in this dance that we do together, It's a lot more meaningful to me. It's a lot more meaningful to Hashem. It's a lot more meaningful to the world. Yeah, so it's a little bit of a Chanel to Shabbat story. I still love Chanel, but... (laughs) Chanel and Shabbat. Shabbat Shabbat and Shabbat. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, firstly, I just want to say that your sincerity and soul just like shines through when you speak. I can really feel it in my bones when you speak, like how much you are feeling what you are sharing with us. 
Even though I'm sure you've shared your story before, it's as if you were just like sharing it for the first time. I really could feel that. So on the one hand, I want to ask you about you as a businesswoman and a fashionista. And on the other hand, I want to ask you, you as, you know, journey as Jew. But then I'm like, maybe they're so intertwined that we shouldn't really separate them. So I want to ask you, what was it like to become reconnected to your Jewish soul as you are one in the limelight and just morphing your entire identity and running all of these businesses? What was that experience like? What were the struggles? What were the growth opportunities that you had at those times? So it was a lot of rejection, a lot of rejection of love from people because they didn't understand the shift. It was a lot of acceptance on the inside and on the side of truth. So for me, the stronger I felt as an individual, the less it mattered to me how I was accepted by people who didn't understand me to begin with. They say that if you're in a room with somebody who doesn't understand you, it's like you're constantly translating your soul. And I decided even in business to take a stand that no business was big enough for me to jump into a business with somebody who didn't understand my soul. Then I'm translating all day, right? So that's what I search for today. I search for relationships that mean things to me and opportunities that are larger than life. And I feel very, very blessed to be the daughter of somebody who was an immense thinker in the sense that I would wake up in the morning and tell my father, dad, sit down. I had this dream and it was this, and then this happened. And then we were on a yacht and then this art gallery. And then there was a thief and he would be like, what? We got to make the movie. It's so amazing. And I'm going to call my friend and I got to make the movie and I got to get make the movie. Or I'd say, dad, did you taste this scone that Agnes made? What? Scones delivered fresh to your house. Everything was large and everything was to be shared. I don't even remember the question that you asked me, <laughs> to be honest we're with you. We're just like, we're going with your father. We're going, we're yes. going with it. Well, we're tell going. us about your father. Tell us we're about your father's energy. impact on your journey. That would be really that's a very That's hear. always a very fun question. Yes. So my dad was crazy. He had a great sense of humor. My father actually suffered a stroke when he was 60, and he wasn't able to talk for two days. And I remember that entire experience really just like put in a small size who he was as a man. He wakes up from a stroke and he can't talk. And he looks at the doctor and he's like, mm, mm. and they look at me and they say, he may not be able to speak. And my dad goes, mm, mm, mm. and he took a minute and he calms down. And very, very slowly within the next day or two, he began to speak again. And as he began to speak, we began to play jokes on people that he still couldn't speak. So we would go places, and I remember my mom walking in the room, my dad winking at me, and she's like, ah, and how are you? Ah, and my dad would go, mm, 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 and then he'd wink at me and wink at me. He had such a sense of humor, and he turned struggle into soul, and he turned negative situations into optimistic ones. And I was cooking Shabbos for 40 people the other week, and I pushed my mom away from the sink. And she's like, you're exactly like your grandmother and you're exactly like your father. It's like nothing gets in the way. When you have a goal, you're going to get it. I remember my father would give me like crazy ideas and then I would watch them happen. And as a child, I've seen other people who have ideas and then see other people do them. So as a child, he had so much passion. When I watched the Holocaust survivor yesterday here on this stage talk about how he had a vision and then he went out and bought drums 
and now he's playing at the win. That's exactly my father. It was like, here's the idea. And it goes from being like from the Chokhmah to the Bina to the Dat. It like goes to all the stages, even if it was a relationship. I would see people come for Shabbos and I was like, dad, what is this guy doing in our house? He's this, he stinks, he that, he this. And my dad goes, you don't know him, but when you know him, you're going to love him. And it was the same way he built people. He invested in relationships. He invested in ideas. And the only time he wouldn't was when he felt that there was a better match for the person. Yeah, so he was an enormous force in my life. And the apples don't fall far from the trees. Oh, nice. I love what you said about how some people have the ideas and then often you see that other people execute those ideas. I would love to hear from you on what has been the bridge in your life between vision and execution so that you can be both the visionary and the one that's making it happen. Sure. I would say it was in my Yiddishkeit where I saw the biggest transformation. I think building companies, there's books you can, I mean, there's, there's maybe other people that you can speak to to hear more meaningful talk there. I think it's about building communities and building families. And ultimately your families, like your poem yesterday about the flowers, that's how I feel. I feel like when my seven kids, I'm just trying to be a young, vivacious gardener and then let them shine to the world. I would say that my most meaningful build was probably from divorce to marriage and from being a girl in the millennial world to being a from Jewish woman. It started with a fortune board. It started literally like that. My family was very wild and open and fun and they did a fortune board Sunday. So they bought a lot of magazines and they brought paper. And I said, I like the idea, you know, my dad built a lot of shuls. So I got to go sit at a Shabbos table and I love the dynamics, but I couldn't see myself. What do I look like as a firm Jew? I can't wear a brown shaitel. I couldn't merge my appreciation for arts and beauty with that life. So I just said, where's my place in it? But I could see its value. Like any strong woman who analyzes something and tries to take the emotions out of it and just seek straight the truth, I could see that it was the truth. So I wanted it. And I built a fortune board that had a man putting on tefillin. It had the kotel. And it had every major fabulous outfit from Vogue and Elle, a fall issue. So they were all covered up, fur coats, real fun stuff. And it had healthier eating. It had many children. And I had been married and had only had one child in 10 years. I didn't worry about it. I felt a very big amuna towards Hashem that that was my mission to have this amazing child. His name's Noah. And as it turns out, a month after I divorced, my rabbi called me and he introduced me to a boy who was also on a journey. And quickly I could see that the pictures were not just pictures on a piece of paper, but they began to take shape and breathe and interact and be part of my reality. And together we have seven kids. And it's the same thing in business. It's absolutely the same thing in business. And when you're really partners with Hashem, you know that you do your best and then Hashem does the rest and he puts the cherry on the top. He really, it's in Shara Bitachon that it says that a businessman sees Hashem. And it's really true in my everyday life that I really see Hashem. But I would say that really to watch this board actually... (laughs) 
become so much with so much more dimension is like really one place in my life where I've really seen something like that materialize. Yeah. That's a very powerful transformation. Yeah, that you're it's describing. imagery. It's yeah. imagery. Yeah. Also, like you said, from millennial to being a from mom of many children, thank God, it's like, it's the two different worlds. Yeah. Or so it seems. We used to host a party in LA called Nylon Young Hollywood. And I used to host it every year. The thing was, it was a different lineup every year. And I used to host it and think to myself, oh, these are the stars of this year. Oh, these are the stars of this year. It was very seldom that the one from last year was the one in the... And then I remember spending also time in my life with royalty and seeing them as never fading and constant and very similar to my experience spending time with Ivanka Trump or spending time with people who value themselves at a different level. And I also learned to also in fashion, being in fashion, the manipulation of apparel. My job is to make you want something new every quarter. My job is to make you think that the thing you bought last month is not valuable and that there's something else that's going to make you feel super awesome and allow you to go out and get that vibe because last year it was high-waisted, but this year it's bell-bottom and next year it's a capri and the year after that it's a midi and the year after that it's a mini. And so I'm taught to teach people that it's never good enough. And so when I began to dress in a way that was reflective of my character and my neshama could come out, I really began to value a classic. <laughs> I really began to value something I bought last year, but feel confident to wear every week if I feel like it. Almost a sort of a uniform, like a uniform to my exterior so that you could meet a new me every day type of idea. So clothes are tricky. Yeah. That's an interesting question I'd love to ask you is, as someone working in fashion, you had your fashion identity, not within the guidelines of modesty. What was it like to morph your fashion taste to suit modesty? And what were the struggles there? And what was the beauty there too? I think like everything, if you're confident in what you're doing and it's really MS, then people love it. I remember I was at home and I was very, very close with a celebrity named Zoe Deschanel. And she was going through a divorce, as was I. And I really began to observe Shabbos in a very different manner, not in like a Azria family house Shabbos, rock and roll Shabbos, but to begin to quiet down everything and have a little bit of a dance to my life, a balance of giving and receiving. And I remember telling Zoe that I was really like not going to go anywhere on Shabbos, that I was going to stay home. And she says to me, so like, if there's like a really good party on a Friday night, like you're not going to go? And I'm like, no. She's like, what if it's my birthday on a Saturday? I was like, yeah, no, not going to go. And she's like, that's awesome. She's like, I want to do it with you. And she kept Shabbos with me a few weeks in a row. Oh, Hashem, she later went through a conversion. But I feel like usually when you're holding at a very, very high frequency, you set a really, really good level of truth in the room and everybody kind of comes up. But when you don't stand up for who you are, then everybody's bent. I actually say this when I speak in kind of bigger settings, but I have this line that's, if you don't stand for something, you stand for nothing. And if you stand for nothing, people can't stand you. And it's so true. I remember I used to hire people and they used to tell me, Joyce, if I take this job 
I can't work during Christmas time because that is the time where I go home and see my family. And it's at that moment where I would hire them because it was important to them. And they showed backbone and they showed, this is important to me. My family is important to me. And it's more important, quite frankly, than this fashion job. Or I dance every morning. And so I could only be here by 930. So you got the job. I love my dog. And so I take her back to a retreat yearly and walk on a mountain with her. Okay, you got the job. I'm saying it's important for people to have things that they hold onto and stand up for. And I think that's why people thrive. The HR people used to always come to me and they say, nobody can survive a year in your father's company. Nobody. And you have zero turnover. How do you keep people? Well, first, I like them. And second of all, in order for there to be an atmosphere of growth, each person has to be growing individually. And so it's a lot about putting their negative thoughts to the side and challenging them to be an optimistic thinker. It's about trying to help them break away their fears and build themselves as leaders. I'll never forget, I had an employee named Darwin. He ended up passing away. And it was a very, very hard thing for our team to go through. We had like almost a thousand employees. And he started out as an assistant to an assistant in the design room. I don't think he ever had the dream of doing anything more than being an assistant to an assistant. He was very happy. He baked for us. He was super cool, great vibe all the time. And one day a stylist called in sick and the stylists were paid very, very high for a day of styling. And I said, Darwin, you style. He looked at me. I think his eyes were bigger than his entire self. Like so much fear of disappointment and so much fear of growing. And I looked at him and I said, you can do it. And I ended up firing the stylist and he was my full-time stylist. And within the day, he went from being the assistant of the assistant to our full-time stylist. Wow. Yeah. It takes a leader being fearlessly themselves to encourage that in other people. For sure. So you're obviously an example to that for the people that are working with you. I think that's tremendous. I'm going to correct you. I actually have a tremendous amount of fear. Mm. And I think that when Hashem gives us struggle, it's typically what we can teach. And to be totally candid with you, as a young child, my parents divorced and I was raised by my dad alone. And I had a lot of fear. Why does my mom not want me? What's wrong with me? And as the eldest daughter in a Sephardic family, I became quickly a mom at eight. So I had a lot of fear. I had a lot of fear when I was 14 and my dad tells me, take the BMW and take your sisters to their doctor's checkup. Because I'm 14 years old driving through the streets of Beverly Hills with three little kids in the back, taking them for vaccines. I mean, I was terrified. I was terrified at eight to never attend school on Fridays because I was cooking for Shabbos. I was terrified when the principal of the school threw me out of the school for never attending school on Friday. I sat in the meeting with my father, with Dr. Fields, and he said, your daughter's not coming to school on Fridays. And my dad said, yeah, I don't have a wife. She's cooking for Shabbos. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and he says, your daughter is cooking? And he said, yeah. He said, Max, this is the last Friday she doesn't attend school. Starting next Friday, she's attending school or she has to be taken out of the school. I remember shaking, walking out of the room with my dad. And I look at my dad. I said, am I going to get 
dropped out of school. Mike, are they going to throw me out of school? Did I have to stop cooking for Shabbos? I mean, I freaked out so much fear. He looked at me, he goes, nah. And that Shabbos, I cooked for Shabbos and every Shabbos after that. But it was because I had so much fear that when somebody was in front of me and they were scared, I looked at them and I said, I know, like with one look, I didn't, yeah, I didn't even know. You know, people say like, how do you public speak? I've spoken in front of thousands of people. I'm never nervous. How come you're not nervous? I spend my entire life being nervous. So I can teach nervousness and I can teach fear and I can teach anxiety. But I am also the most brave when it comes really to having to face it. So, Baruch Hashem. So that's what I think mm. also is a key. Somebody asked me once, how do I figure out what I should do? And I asked them, what scares you? It's probably a wink from Hashem. Is it like vulnerability? Is it just taking risk? Is it risk taking in general? So yeah, wow. so we have to flex both sides there. That was a powerful message there. I would love to hear if there was any fear in your choice to be more connected to your Judaism. Fear of loneliness, fear of being alone. And when I hit rock bottom and I was really alone, like I was divorced and my kid would go back and forth and everybody had like some really awesome place to go on Shabbos. And I would sit there in my dad's house, which was more of a hotel by myself. It was scary. It was scary, but I wanted to eat chillant and I wanted to chill. I mean, I mean, it was scary. You know, I think a lot of things are scary but it was more scary to stay who I was in an HL dress, blow drying my hair four times a day and feeling like I had to like be a robot, live like a robot. I think that was scary. And guess what? I wasn't going to stay like pretty forever. You know what I'm saying? Like on the merit of like, no, but I'm saying I had moments where I would walk into a room and be like, well, I'm definitely not going to make this feeling happen in 20 years or 30 years. And I wanted to build on something that I felt was more everlasting. My intelligence, my sense of humor, my open heart, my love of others, my desire to impact the world. I cried when I was eight years old and found out I couldn't be the president of the United States. They said the president of the United States has to be born in the United States. And I bawled at my desk like a baby. And I remember being so distraught did I really think I was going to run the U United States? I don't know. I'd love to. <laughs> Introduce a little bit of God. What has been your experience as a woman who both holds the Jewish perspective on what a woman is and then also the world's perspective on what a woman is? In the business setting, I get this question a lot. What does it feel to be a woman in a leadership role, I don't know. I was raised by a guy who was as sensitive and vulnerable as I was. I don't, same, same. I never felt less of something because I was a woman or less of something because I was a firm Jew. So it's a funny question. Is there a part of me that feels like a woman has less ability and so she should share how empowering it is to be in business? Women have always been in business. Eshes Chayel, women are running around, weaving stuff, doing stuff, building children, building business, building economies, building people, building their husband. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Maybe I don't have the right words for it. 
I feel as good a shot as any. I don't know. <laughs> I think you answered that beautifully. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Yeah. Hashem chose me to be a woman. It's not a mistake. Yeah. I didn't I make a mistake. <laughs> I like that. And I think that one day we'll look back at that question and we'll say like, what? That's not a question. Yeah. Do you ask that to anyone else? Yeah. Actually, I was 29 years old running a very, very big business. And I feel like maybe that was a little irresponsible. Yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't have been yeah. doing that. <laughs> maybe the experience factor is important. But there's always pros and cons to everything. Do you see any disparity in the way that Judaism views women versus the way that your environment in fashion does or not really? No. I think life is about values and you bring that where you go and you don't separate from that. So yeah, no. Nice. Okay. Thank you. What has been very practically speaking, if you could, as a mother myself, I just, I need to know, what is it like for you to be a mom of so many children and handling all of these professional responsibilities that you do? And how do you practically carry that out? <laughs> I don't know. I just do it. I'm still working on it. Listen, I'm Sfardi, half. So sometimes I'm running around with a shoe, like screaming. Most times I'm trying to talk and elevate. I'm doing my best. I heard this lady once talk about good enough parenting. She used to talk about what a great parent is and what a parent less than, less than, you know, average parent, like a good enough parent. I think I do my best and Hashem does the rest. When I think of my father's parenting style, it was awful. It was awful. It was literally the punishments were like, I'll put you in a box. And you're like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> It's a box. What am I going to do in that box? Yeah. Or like, you're never going to eat ever. What? <laughs> so, I mean, it was the most terrible parenting skills. I remember my sister going through something very, very heavy as a teenager. And she told my dad something very, very saucy. And she told my dad also that she was going to call the police on him. And he's like, you call the police. You will be dead first. And I don't know. It was terrible. I think in the book of parenting, it was probably an F minus, but I love him and I celebrate him and it's stuff you can look back and laugh at. I think that the most important thing for a child is love. It's the most important thing for anybody. And so I try and love them a lot and I try and touch them a lot and hug them a lot. And I try and laugh with them a lot. And then the rest, like my dad would say, is the literature. It's the details. I do my best. Hashem does the rest. But I do think in the balance, where do I sit with the balance of it all, is that when I'm working, I'm able to really separate myself from my home. And in that aspect, I think I may be a man. I'm able to really, really separate myself from my home. It doesn't mean that I'm not loving them. It doesn't mean that I'm not. But when I'm working, I'm working because I have every ounce of confidence that Hashem is watching my children. And when I'm with my children or it's Shabbos, I have every ounce of confidence in Hashem, the creator of my business, to be able to run my business. So I was asked once, I was opening 155 stores in one day, wow. five years ago. I was pregnant with my fifth or sixth, fifth. And I was a couple weeks before delivering in New Jersey doing this speech. And somebody said to me like, how are you not at your store openings? They're going to open whether I'm there or not. Can't get to all 155 of them. So I'll do this talk instead. I think when you really have the ego to think that you're really running everything, then it gets tricky. 
But if you're really confident in Hashem that he is doing everything, then wherever you are, you're good. You're there. (laughs) You're not in the other place. I see a lot of times people are like on vacation and they're on the phone the whole time for work. But then when they're at work, they're like, I really need a vacation. I don't know. Kind of like, where are you? Yeah. I'm here. Right here. <laughs> yeah. Can you share with us what Shabbos has brought to your life? Because you've been mentioning Shabbos a lot, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and how it's transformed anything. So Shabbos was my first mitzvah. I was in a very, very hard place in my life, in my marriage at the time, 10 years in my marriage into my marriage as a 19-year-old. I was 29. And I went to see a rabbi, and he called me by my Jewish name, Yudit, which felt very strong. Actually, yesterday, Yudit Bas Mordechai. Anyways, I won't bring that in. It'll make it a long story. But he said to me, Yudit, you have to keep Shabbos. You have to keep Shabbos because you don't have perspective. And I said, what? How do I not have perspective? I have great perspective. (laughs) He says, no, because you can handle very, very big things, but the little things mix you up. And it's true. I could go do this and that, and it was huge and it was big and I could, but then like somebody would be like, I can't meet you at five. I can meet you at 530. I was like, what? What? 30 minutes? What am I going to do with it? 30 minutes. It would freak me out. And he gave me that example. And he said, Shabbos will allow you to have perspective of the week, perspective of people, perspective of yourself, zooming out. Makes sense, right? You're adjusting a camera. You go up, boom, boom. You know, you have to go in and out. In life, if you're a giver, I'm the biggest giver. I will give you my jacket. I'll give you my purse. I'll give you anything I have. But this year, I'm learning how to receive. And this is what type of thing Shabbos teaches me. All week, I'm running. I don't stop. Every single one of my kids has a best favorite food. I make 22 entree salads and like 10 main courses and four desserts. And the table's not big enough to hold all the food I make on Shabbos. But that's my style. I'm always doing, I remember I married my husband and he's like, what's for dinner? And I was like, zucchini soup and it's a roast and a salad. And he, and he looks at me, he's like, we're two. <laughs> but this year I've made it a point to receive. So that's Shabbos. All week I'm giving, all week I'm using the brain Hashem gives me, the heart Hashem makes beat, the feet that I have running in the little shoes. Hashem is giving me all of it. So on Shabbos, I'm receiving, you know, so that I have the energy to do it all week. And Shabbos is extremely important to me. And it was the first thing I could attain. If you would have told me to give up my library of footwear, literally had a library of footwear, because I was becoming from, or a library of clothing, I would have told you, I can't. I physically can't. I can't. That's like eating cake all day and then somebody handing you a piece of celery and say, hey, go for it. It's, I eat cake all day. So Shabbos was very attainable because it was like, oh, go on vacation one day a week, recharge one day a week, eat one day a week, hang out with awesome people one day a week. It was epic. It's epic. It's eternal. It was then powerful. It is now powerful. It is forever powerful. Four desserts for my kids on Shabbos. Cartwheel all over the house on Shabbos. It's Shabbos. 
We are so, so blessed. I work like a dog when I'm working. (laughs) I need it. I go from one bed to an, I don't know how parents do it at seven o'clock. You walk in their house, it's quiet. Not my house. (laughs) I got to sit on every single bed, coddle them, kiss them, love them, pretend I'm not answering an email. And then when everyone's asleep at nine, my two-year-old comes back out and then I'm looking at my husband like, when is it going to stop? So I work hard. I work hard. I want to be a great mom. I want to be a great entrepreneur. I want to be a great wife. A healer told me a couple weeks ago, she said, Joyce, at home, you're 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At work, you're 100%. I was like, yeah. She's like, it looks like you take care of yourself too. 100%, 100 you're a great wife. Oh, thank you. Thank you. A hundred. She was, how many hundreds make a hundred? I was like, it's so true. I can't, I can't. It's not sustainable. The best Manolos you can't keep running. The best shoes you can't keep running in. You got to put them to the side a minute, chill, enjoy, receive, download, and then go again. Then go run again. Got to take a break. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the pressures of your life during the week? No, I'm going to tell you something. I used to be extremely overwhelmed all the time. Shara Bitachon, the gates of trust. Don't read it once. Don't read it twice. (laughs) Don't read it three times. Read it every single day of your existence. Because I can really say that in the last year or so of my life, since I got Shara Bitachon, the book, it integrated my life so much better. Now when I'm stumbling, I'm like, I love you, Hashem. I'm meant to stumble. I'm meant to fall. I'm meant to be late. I'm meant for you to be late. It's awesome. It's the Kool-Aid. It's literally the Kool-Aid. And I can tell you, I have struggled so much. I think from 16 to 19, I tried every single antidepressant, anti-anxiety, anti-this. I walked with snakes. I deep breathed. I heard that gong. I lived in L.A., the loony capital of the world. I mean, I did it all and I wanted to be great at it. Like I will walk with those snakes and not be scared when I get to the other side. Guess what? Seed here. Yeah. No, I was terrified. Didn't take anything away. Trust in Hashem. He's there. I almost passed from COVID two years ago and I was many, many days alone in a room. I had just delivered my seventh child and he was taken away from me at birth and I almost passed away. And every day alone in that room, was such a boot camp. And I really understood that that's what it is. It's you and your neshama. So if you got it backwards, you're messed up. If you are not looking for a shidduch when you're young and you're thinking about your career, you got it mixed up. Why? You can't be a fashion designer when you're married. You can be a fashion designer when you're married with a kid. Jewish values, simple, plain, simple Jewish values. And so Sharabitachon is something that, I don't know, for me, it was the biggest gift in my last year and a half of my existence. It was like an integration point. I can tell you, I celebrated this year my 41st birthday. I was so excited to be 41. I was so excited by my struggles. I was so excited by everything that had led up to it. And to be 41 and to feel how I feel and to feel like Hashem is with me all the time and feel and feel in peace a lot. And I had to fight. I had to fight to make it through the day. I had to fight to wake up. 
I had to fight a lot as a young girl. As a teenager, I struggled so much. I had an immense amount of responsibility. I was terrified of everything. I was scared when there were too many people. I was scared when there were too few people. I was scared when we were there. I was scared when we were here. I was scared to stay home, but I was scared to go to Thailand. I was scared. And today, I never would have thought of myself as somebody who would bring my seven children across the country to live in a home that I had never seen. I moved my entire family during COVID and bought a house I didn't see in a neighborhood I didn't know. But I knew one thing is that I had a shul and I knew one thing I was going to build a mikvah and I knew one thing that I would have a community and I knew one thing as a Jew, I was never alone. So Baruch Hashem. But it's been the biggest gift in my life this year. Shara Bitaram. Beautiful. Please, everybody buy it. The Felig edition. It's on Amazon. You can find it. Blue and white cover. It's a beautiful book. Read it with appetite. Read it daily. Read it daily. Yeah, don't read it once. Don't read it twice. Don't. Read it every Keep day. Keep going. Keep going. I like that. It's your spiritual. You scroll on Instagram all day long. You can give five minutes to Shara Bitaram. Nice. Do you have any advice for anyone who is looking to make any changes in becoming more connected to their Judaism as someone who has gone from zero to 100 in your life, what are some words of wisdom you can impart on anyone looking for that shift? I like something I heard a long time ago that says that a Jew is always moving. And if he's not moving forward, he's moving back. And I really see it in life. I think I saw it the most also as my father was aging and unwell health-wise is that if I actually have a recording of him a few days before he passed away. And he was talking about moving and he was talking about building a home in a new state. And he was talking about what car he's going to have and what he's going to do and how the kitchen's going to be kosher. And he was planning the future. So it's very much like watering a plant. It's like you don't necessarily see it growing every single day, but if you're watering it, it is growing. I think with Judaism, you got to fight. You have to fight every day for it to mean something to you. You have to fight every day to feel it. You have to make it burn, <laughs> you know, like at the gym, you know, and they're like, keep going, make it burn. <laughs> you got to make it burn. And Judaism is delicious. It's like you have to eat it with gusto, with appetite, with joy. You have to sit back and enjoy it. You have to actively participate with it. You just got to do it. You got to do things like this. I didn't even know about this, this Jewish retreat, national Jewish retreat, until I was, you know, called a couple of weeks ago. And this is amazing. What are you doing here? How did you get here? This is unbelievable. I think I was dancing in the room last night. I told my husband, I'm like, where are we? What is this? My sister called me. She's like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm at the national Jewish retreat. And blah, 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 blah. She goes, are you at Jewish Disneyland? Yes. I'm like, yes, I'm at Jewish Disneyland. It's Mashiach times here here in Florida. This is epic. This is epic. If we're not growing as Jews, we're really doing the opposite. So I think how you really create something big is by doing something small all the time. And so you might think, well, let me do something that's easy. That's good. Lighting Shabbos candles is easy. Good. Do it. You know, you can't study the whole Shabbat Tachon. Fine. Read a page. Read a paragraph. Who cares? Read something. Do something. Do something. That's something that I see today. I mentor a lot of young girls. And the thought of doing something big is so freakish that they don't even take a step. And they say, oh, I want to have a podcast. I'm like, okay, where's your mic? I didn't buy it yet. Well, what material do you want to write? I don't know yet. And then it was like, you ask them again, oh, how's your podcast? Oh, I'm over it. 
got to go. I wrote a book a couple years ago called Choicey Joycey. It's a kid's book about making choices. And it was hard. I was really busy. But I really wanted to write a book. I really wanted to make something for the new generation that was about you can choose Hashem or you cannot choose Hashem in every situation. You know, your mom cooks dinner and burns it. It's donuts for dinner or it's not a good day. So I think do small things. Do small things. Actively do small things. You want a food blog? Like go, eat, taste, go, move. You want a podcast? Get the mic. You want to have a fashion business? Go walk around a fabric store. Do something. Don't sit there and let it percolate for years. You know, my dad was very disappointed once. He went to see the, the head of Bank of America and he says, I hate the credit card because it's so selfish. I'm buying, buying, buying for myself. What if one penny of every dollar you spent on your credit card went to a charity that you like? A few years later, it became a thing. The guy was not into it. A few years later, it actually became a thing and you could pick somewhere to donate through your credit card. And he was like, oh, they didn't want it from me. That He was so upset that his idea, but you have to live like that. You got to go. I was on an airplane last month and I told my husband, this is the worst experience ever. I am going to call the head of Delta and tell them to hire me now. <laughs> it is imperative. Travel is disgusting. I feel like cattle. Give me a barf bag that says it's going to be okay. Make me feel special. Why am I standing six feet apart outside and the guy just coughed next to me? I'm confused. I want to run an airline. My husband always laughs at me. Why not? Guys, you, Why not? But that's how you get there. I'll give you a couple of years, yeah. That's how you get there. You call the airline. You write that letter that gets noticed. I've I've done so many bold moves with people who have had the courage to just put themselves out there. Right. That's powerful. And I like that. Water the yeah. plant. You don't always see it growing right away. Yeah. Joyce, this was beautiful. Thank I you. so enjoyed connecting with you. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> Thank you so much. Elokai Zakinina Betoratra Urimitotecha Lichambered Nishmati Tamidinecha Mechamber Mechamber. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, I want to invite you to leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast. And you know, we're all about getting Chassidus into every corner of the world. I also want to invite you, if you really loved it, to share it with a friend who you think might love it too. If you would like to sponsor an episode, you can reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. To give to Human and Holy in any amount, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor. You can follow us on Instagram at humanandholy, and you can stay up to date with everything we do by signing up for our newsletter on humanandholy.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.